in the beginning was Tiamat. She was a legit sea dragon. She was goddess over the salt waters. She embodied the chaos of the ocean. She and her husband, Apsu, the god of the fresh waters, hooked up and gave birth to the first generation of deities in the world. But those kids, you know how kids are? They got rowdy. Maybe unlike most parents, Apsu made plans to kill them all. (laughs) One of the deity kids, Inky, found out about this and he captured Apsu and he took him to his netherworld temple and he killed him. And when Tiamat, the sea goddess, found out, she fashioned 11 monsters with names like Furious Snake and Big Weather Beast and Bull Man to fight Inky and the rebellious deities. She appointed her offspring, Kingu, as her lover and the leader of the army of beasts. And the leader of the opposing deities was Marduk, the son of Inki. And in their epic battle, he slayed Tiamat with the arrows of the wind, with a net and a club and an invincible spear. He cut Tiamat in half. And he used her ribcage to create the vault of the heavens over the earth. Tiamat's weeping eyes became the source of the Tigris and Euphrates River. The source of water in the Middle East. Tiamat's tail became the Milky Way. Kingu, Tiamat's offspring and the leader of the Chaos Army was also captured and slain. His red blood mixed with the red clay of earth formed the bodies of human beings who were created as the servants of these victorious gods. And Marduk, the victorious warrior storm god, became ruler over the pantheon of the gods. That is the origin story of Babylon. That is how Babylon's chief deity, Marduk, came to power. And it's in conversation and in context with origin stories like that, which was one of the more popular of the day, that the Genesis creation accounts were written and told. And of course, uh, most of us have never heard that story, probably. I mean, just think if Marvel got a hold of it. Like, they would kill it at the box office. All they got to do is pick up the Enuma Elish. They'll be good. We don't hear that story when we hear creation story. Uh, but we can't help, maybe, to hear the creation story in light of modern accounts, uh, like the Big Bang. In the beginning was a singularity. And quantum fluctuations were hovering over the void, bringing the universe into being and causing it to expand from very high density and a high temperature state. And yet, that modern story in some ways functions very differently than those original creation stories. Completely different genres. Uh, The poetic 
versus the scientific. So on some level, it's not fair to compare them. They're, they're operating in different ways. And yet in some ways, these stories function similarly. Um, I, I wish somebody had given some of that nuance to the guy teaching the Bible class in East Texas who was convinced that we would all go to hell if we believed in evolutionary processes. My, my question is, you know, uh, let, let's say evolutionary processes weren't working in the world. Okay. Uh, my question is, what was the singularity? Who was the singularity? So there are, there are points of overlap, collaboration. There are points of competition between these creation stories. Stories have power. Stories have power for better, and they have power for worse. This last summer, I was in a seminar, and my professor, Dr. Raw, told uh, the, the story and the history uh, of uh, African American people in our country, uh, beginning with their slavery. And he had this question that he asked as he, as he reviewed the history of the oppression of African American people in our country. When, uh, when after the Civil War, slavery was, uh, was disbanded and done away with, it wasn't very long until Jim Crow, segregationist laws, Pop up. The, the Civil War advocates were, were excited that Matt, finally slavery's been abolished, uh, but time doesn't go very far before we have these new laws that subjugate our black brothers and sisters and neighbors in this country. What's going on? That we have all these systems and structures and they're dismantled and it's like they reappear in another form. You could tell the same thing to, to Rosa Parks and Martin, Le- Martin Luther King. Uh, who in, um, in, the, in the 50s and 60s decided that Jim Crow was not legit, which it wasn't, and they fought to abolish it, and it was, and there was excitement that there's liberation and equality in our country, and yet time goes by, these systems are dismantled, uh, only to find out that there's a new Jim Crow in our country. There's the, the segregation of mass incarceration. Or a disproportionate number of our, of our black brothers and sisters and neighbors are incarcerated. And Dr. Ross' question was, what is going on that these systems and structures are dismantled only to reappear in different forms just decades down the road? And do you know what his answer was? Story. There's a story at play. What he would call mediating narratives that play under the surface. In this case, the story of white supremacy. That even when systems and structures were dismantled, the story, the mediating narrative continued in our culture such that it reformulated in different expressions. Stories have power for better and for worse. Ivan Illich has this great quote. He says, Neither revolution or reformation can ultimately change a society. Rather, you must tell a powerful new tale. One so persuasive that it sweeps away the old myths and becomes the preferred story. 
One so inclusive that it gathers all the bits of our past and our present into a coherent whole. One that even shines some light into the future so that we can take the next step. If you want to change a society, then you have to tell an alternative story. Dr. Raw called this lamb chop theology, which I thought was really funny. If a dog has a chicken bone in its mouth, you can't pull out the chicken bone without great aggression from the dog. You have to throw down a lamb chop so that it will drop the chicken bone and eat the lamb chop. He would say the church uh, and the American people have had a chicken bone in their mouth, this narrative of white supremacy, and they need a lamb chop. An alternative theology of culture, an alternative story, so that it will drop the chicken bone and pick up the lamb chop, so that it will grasp onto a greater story that makes sense of the world better than the ones that we've had. Which is why it's so important for us to revisit this story for a fresh telling, which is what we're doing at the beginning of this year. We'll be going through the acts of the story of God for the next six weeks. Rachel Held Evans says, origin stories tell us who we are, where we come from, and what the world is like. Now, I think she's right. And I would add, good origin stories tell us how to live. Um, And because that's true, I'd like to outline several implications of this creation story that we heard read. And I want you to be thinking about what resonates with you in these implications, what might cause dissonance for you, or other implications that I'm not mentioning and and we'll discuss. So I only have nine implications. And, you know, the... Oh, man, somebody removed the clock. I, I was going to make a great preacher, preacher joke that time had stood still. And so it was going to be a zero-minute sermon. Either that or like one hour for implication. So, like, by, yeah, ruined it all. All right, implications. And I, I've, I've got a list so that you, you visual folks can see them. Um, implication number one, and we'll move fast. That's what every preacher says. We're wired to know God. God in this story is this artist king who creates this canvas uh, uh, amidst the waters and the chaos. And he creates the world as the temple of his glory where he'll dwell with God's creation. Everything is created in relation to this creating God. And so to live out of our origin story is to stay connected to God. And it's partly where our value for intimacy with God stems from. The second implication, we are wired to know each other. The universe is imbued with relationality. The architect is person and being in relation. The second creation account in Genesis chapter 2 talks about how it is not good for humans to be alone. We're created for relationship. Not just with God, but with each other. Uh, No man is an island. No person is an island. So to live out our origin story is to be in meaningful relationships with each other. In part, is why we value family-like kind of connections. The kind that Mark Hila talked about. The third implication. 
We humans are all created in the image of God, stamped and fashioned with immeasurable worth and glory. The image of God, the Imago Dei, grounds Val's communion talk because we are we are embedded, uh, integral to who we are is the image of God, which means in particular and prophetically that black lives matter, brown lives matter, Muslim lives matter, immigrant lives matter, female lives matter, enemy lives, enemy lives matter, whoever our enemies are. Our creation story helps us to resist making anybody the other, particularly those on the margins or those who are different from us, because we all bear the image of God, all of us. Fourth implication, and language here is difficult, so hear me out. We are wired to rule, and that word has horrible connotations in our language. Um, So, but hear me out. Let me nuance it. And I'm using this language because Genesis uses this language. Um, You hear the language of rule and subdue and dominion in this text. Most likely, the meaning of image of God refers to the kingly practice of setting up images in the land in which the king rules as a sign or a symbol of kingly authority. God's images of authority are male and female, both created in the image of God, both created to share in this under-ruling, ruling under the authority of the great king of creation. And the key here in rulership is to rule in ways we rule, we are invested with authority that is consistent with the character of this creator king. Who, we find out later in the story, does not rule with an iron fist or with coercion or with oppression, but with love and service and self-sacrifice. So we, we rule uh, as junior partners in creation, as, co- as stewards, as partners um, under God in this way, to care for this world that God has created. To live out our creation story is to steward and partner with God in creation in ways that are consistent with God's nature. Kind of an extension of this, the fifth implication, is it following me? Yeah. We are tasked with creation care. This is part of what it means to steward with God's character. Dominion does not mean exploiting our planet. Subduing does not mean doing whatever the heck we want with this created order. It doesn't mean obliterating and devastating the earth for our selfish gain. Global warming is a thing. The plastic island in the Pacific is a thing. Largely the result of humanity not caring for creation. To to live out our story of creation is to tend to the garden of creation with great care. And love. The next one might not be intuitive, but think about the Tiamat story. Our world is wired for nonviolence. There's a very clear contrast between the Tiamat story 
and the creation story of Yahweh. Where God, rather than creating through acts of violence and war and domination, God creates through spoken word. God brings worlds into existence peaceably, non-violently. God creates the seas and the chaos monster. God is not the yin to the yang of evil in the world. God is the creator overall. God creates the chaos and then orders it and puts it in its place in the world. To live out our creation story means we pursue stewardship and partnership in this world with the same nonviolent impulses. The next implication is that our world and our bodies are good. Sometimes our religious stories do not do a good job telling this. Uh, and, and I think it's, part, it's the distortion of the crisis part of the story. Does creation spoil in some, in some senses? Yes. Does, does creation break in some senses? Yes. But creation is still good. Our bodies are still good. The material realm is not something to be discarded and done away with or to, thought, to, to be thought of as, as less than. The material world we experience, it is good. It's of God. Our bodies are good and of God. So the way that we treat them matters. Again, the way that we treat the created order matters. Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6, the angels sing, the whole earth is full of the glory of God. That's post-sin crisis. The psalmist writes, the heavens declare the glory of God. That's post-sin crisis. To live in this world out of our creation story is to see our world and our bodies as good. The eighth implication, our world was made to be enjoyed. I think this is the major import of God modeling rest. That's good leadership. It's like, let me show you all how to do it. I'm going to stop. I'm going to... I'm going to enjoy what I've made. And the main import, you know, this, is, this story is coming to life in the history of Israel, God's people. Uh, and and uh, um, the main import of this part of the story was to reinforce the, uh, the Sabbath law for the, the Israel, Israelite people. Yeah? Because uh, on the seventh day they had this rhythm. For stopping and resting. It's like God knew that left to ourselves, we would not slow down to enjoy our world and our creator. But to live out our creation story is to enjoy our world. It is to rest well. It is to play hard. The final implication. I told you I'd go quick. I'm even going faster than I thought I would. And this, uh, this, one, uh, this one comes from viewing this origin story in light of our location now in the fifth act, which is the, uh, the act of the church. So we're looking back through four acts to see this one. Um, through, as we'll see, um, Christ and Israel uh, and the, the covenant there and, and the crisis of brokenness and sin. Um, 
So, uh, this is to say, creation is on a trajectory toward new creation. It is evolving, if you will, in some ways, toward that. It doesn't get there without the radically transforming work of God to do it. But, but it does have a trajectory, which means we have to view the creation story of the past in light of the future new creation toward which we're headed. And uh, of which Jesus ushered in in his ministry. Uh, part of the Jesus story is that, that the things that are broken about the world we live in now are beginning, beginning to be made new. There is a trajectory toward new creation. Paul says in Romans 8, creation is groaning for its liberation. Creation is. Creation is groaning for its liberation from the bondage of decay. Which means the goal is not to return to Eden. To return to some idyllic past. The new creation is a city. A a diverse city. The New Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And there are realities of freedom and liberation that exist in new creation that didn't exist in Eden. And I could talk a lot longer about this. But I think it particularly relates to the boundaries that are broken in the new creation. Neither male or female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, all are one in Jesus Christ. We cannot simply just root our existence in the creation story and all of the realities of the creation story because it has trajectory to new creation. Creation in which some of the boundaries that are set up by the origin story are shattered and transcended. Y'all hear what I'm saying? Okay. To live out of the creation story faithfully is to live in anticipation of new creation, and even to live into, to enact the reality of new creation. Alright, so talk to me. Cuss me if you need to. What implications resonate with you? What implications might cause dissonance? What implications would you like to add that I haven't mentioned? Charles said I've actually been reading the New Evangelion. Oh, really? Not about it, not a new river, but that creation story, especially. What is fascinating to me throughout all of that is the violent aspect and and the ruling aspect. And that is that the Babylonian story is there to give validation. To a ruling class that rules by violence. Mm-hmm. So the king has the right to mm-hmm. go out and create order mm-hmm. through conquering other groups yep. violently and bringing order to the universe, to his universe. Yep. So, and he is the image of Marduk. Yeah. Uh, so he's the image, he's the direct descendant, and that gives him the right to do this. Whereas, and, and this is what I, I love about Genesis 1 is because it's saying, we're going to use these elements, but we're going to show you a better story. Mm-hmm. And the better story is that it's done. You have a spirit that hovers, mm-hmm. that like like a hen hovering over. Mm-hmm. Does that sound familiar? A mm-hmm. hen hovering over its chick. It hovers over creation. It mm-hmm. is creating 
um, this incredible thing through peace, mm -hmm. and the rule is not one person. The rule is humanity yeah. uh, in both forms, male and female, yeah. together rule over. And I, I just I see that, and and it it just brings to mind the old J, uh, James Weldon Johnson poem on creation, where he talks about God going down and scooping up the dirt and the mud and just getting dirty and making, lovingly making these creatures called mm. human beings mm. uh, in his own image. And that's just, you know, that, so it, it resonates with me. It's that's great. Thank you. Thank you for drawing that out. That's really good. Peggy. One of the things that I, I think is noticeable about the difference between the Numa image and the creation story is the place of humanity. Um, and the idea mm -hmm. um, that humanity in the other story were made to be servants, mm -hmm. right? And, and made, um, and they were an annoyance mm -hmm. to the gods. And so the gods didn't want to hear the cry of people like that. But this story put humans as the treasured, that, that we are treasured by God. Mm -hmm. And that God, from beginning to end, is pursuing us. And I love what you said about our world is, a, is on a trajectory. I've heard it described as we started in the garden and we're going to end in the garden city. Mm -hmm. Right? And there's this concept that in the middle, the Tower of Babylon, as we we build a city that, that does not uh, work well with the garden. And then the idea that there, there is this opposition between garden and city. Mm. And so instead of taking care of God's creation, we abuse God's creation and use it in ways that are, are harmful to creation. But what we, see, um, what we see in Revelations is this idea where the garden and the city come together. Mm -hmm. um, and we're able to well steward what God has given mm -hmm. us um, and work together with him to where those words, words ruled and subdued um, have a proper context mm -hmm. rather than a context of, 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 of conflict. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yes, Elsa and I have been studying Greek mythology right now and that origin story and the creation through Greek mythology mm -hmm. and I thought, you know, that was the first thing I thought of was the violent aspect even in Greek mythology that mm -hmm. it came from the God of Olympus still in their father and all of that and just thinking as, as you look through Greek mythology is the insignificance of human, yeah. the insignificance of human life that the God could just move, move like pawns and just decide to meddle and because you think you're beautiful, then I'm just going to turn you into uh, a Medusa. Because because I see you're happy, I'm going to disrupt your life. And just to think of those gods treating us, so, treating humanity so insignificantly, how how that contrasts to the God that we serve, right. and how He loves us, and that He creates peace. And His whole idea is to have a relationship with us, a peaceful, life-giving, mutual relationship that is so different from these other creation stories. Mm -hmm. That's not violent, but peaceful. Yeah. And to have a, a peaceful communal relationship. Yeah. God is not uh, fickle or capricious the way that those Greek gods were. Mm -hmm. You know, like we're 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 just annoyances. Like we're we are God's treasured possession. Yeah. Which is a radical and really like 
fortunate contrast for us. I mean, if that's the story we're living in, yeah. I want to live in that one. Yeah. Yeah. I, I always thought the disconnect. I always loved science, and my dad was a scientist, and, and so I always felt that, that lamb chop image um, with evolution, like, um, you know, when I went to church, what, what, I felt, I felt like, the, you know, the threatening of, um, you're, you're foolish if you believe this, you know, like, on the science side of things, you're foolish if you believe this creation story, but then also... Um, like I really believe that this is the heart of our origin story and like how can those things coexist um, always left me with a lot of dissonance because I really believe that somehow they found their way together and I, I think that's oh, I think there's a lot, a lot of dissonance in that lamb chop story whether it's, whether it's race or evolution there's just a lot of fear of you know what if I let go of this and you know like because I was always taught this mm-hmm. and um and I just remember my, you know, my, my dad always believed that those things coexisted and just thinking, but, but how? And we don't have the answers of how, or we don't like, the church traditionally not like the answers of how those coexisted. And so that always, that always sort of gave me that dissonance of like, I feel guilty for believing in evolution, but I also feel guilty for believing in, you know, creation because I don't want to be stupid. So like, yeah, that always gave me. Mm. And I hope you hear, you all hear me saying that there are, even with the, the, um, the Babylonian origin story that there are points of continuity and discontinuity um, and we need to we can pay attention to both of those and uh, and so I think there are ways that we can we can affirm and uh, and embrace scientific thinking because it's operating on a different level than these creation stories and there, there's a way that we can be people of faith and also like uh, integrate the scientific accounts of creation as well yeah without having to feel guilty or like or, or like that guy in the bible class made us feel like man if we ever believed this like we we're hell bound in a second like I, I don't think that's necessary um all right i know there are a lot of good other good thoughts out there uh, thank you for this conversation and for your feedback uh, i hope you hear the good news that we live in god's good world um, that we bear the image of God and that we have this tremendous opportunity and privilege and responsibility to get to be partners, junior partners in creation uh, with God.